Welcome to a special edition of Southbank Centre's book podcast. I'm here in the Royal Festival Hall Cafe, surrounded by literature lovers and festival goers. For the past 12 years, Southbank Centre's London Literature Festival has brought together today's leading writers, thinkers and cultural observers to explore the burning issues of our times. In previous years, we've been on a voyage through the entirety of Moby Dick. We've heard Hillary Clinton's strong views on alternative facts, the voice of Margaret Atwood's handbag, and we've heard poetry from Claudia Rankin, Anne Carson, and a host of poets for Poetry International. And we've seen the dreams of refugees projected onto the wall of the Royal Festival Hall, to name just a few. This year, we'll have everything from a celebration of Homer's Odyssey to an examination of contemporary America in the lead up to the midterm elections. And we'll be bringing you an election special next month. So keep an eye or an ear out for that one. Now we're going to hear from comedian and author Sue Perkins, who was in conversation with her partner, Anne Richardson, in the Royal Festival Hall. You marvels. I always like to start each show just letting you know which one I am. If I don't do that, then half the crowd think, oh, look, there's Mel from Mel and Sue. And the other half think, Christ, one of the proclaimers has really let themselves go. <laughs> My name is Sue. You will know me from leaving some of the most successful shows on television. <laughs> it's fine, it's fine. The loft conversion can wait. It's no biggie. It's really no biggie. Um, first of all, what an absolute belter of a delight to be part of the London Literature Festival and to be here at the magnificent Royal Festival Hall. I won't lie, it's a slightly complicated setup backstage. One wrong turn, I found myself in an in-depth panel discussion on Latin American poetry. Not good. <laughs> Lo siento, no hablo español. That's a lovely jerkin, by the way. Um, now, this lovely lady is Tracy. Round of applause for Tracy. Behind every woman is another great woman. Behind her is Susan. Round of applause for Susan. Now, Tracy is obviously, as you can see, signing everything that I'm saying. Now, Tracy, do you have to sign everything that I say? Yes. Okay. So, this is the story of Tracy. <laughs> Tracy has been having a clandestine affair with Michael Gove for the last 12 years. <laughs> They, they met at a foam party in Reading. <laughs> and their eyes met over a foaming strawberry daiquiri, three umbrellas. <laughs> what on earth is that? <laughs> Co oh, cocktail. Yeah, well... <laughs> Tracy, how do you say hooning trouser snake? Hooning trouser snake. Oh, okay. <laughs> this is the most fun I've ever had on stage, right? I sort of don't even want to get into the book because I just want to play with Tracy. Tracy does it. Now, Tracy has form, by the way. I understand that um, one of the most complicated things that Tracy had to uh, sign, and I don't think, correct me if I'm wrong, that there was a standardized sign for this term, 
but you were slightly taken aback by camel, camel toe, camel hoof. How do you say, okay, <laughs> God. Oh. Do you see, Tracy, how I've walked very far away from you? I'm as far from Tracy as it's possible to be. Magnificent. Now, obviously, before I came on, I showed some rather unflattering pictures of the great love of my life, Melanie. Um, Ali, lovely Ali backstage, can we just track back to... Uh, that's my favourite. That's my... You're probably thinking, now, that's a cruel thing to do to somebody you pretend to love. No. The reason I do this, and I will continue to do this at every single gig from now until the day I drop dead, is because of my 30th birthday. Now, for those who don't know, Mel decided to uh, have a little surprise moment for me at my 30th. She hired a gorillagram. Okay. Um, I was just nicely battered. I was with my mates. We were having a lovely time. About 100 people there. Just really a properly lovely time. And the first... I don't know if you know those meerkats when they, when they sort of sense that there's a, a sort of predator around. They suddenly just go like that. I felt this sort of prickle in the small of my back. I knew something awful was about to happen. And suddenly the music changed from, I can't remember what it would have been at the time, say Blur or Oasis or Pulp or something like that. And suddenly the music changed. And it was... I thought, shit, something bad's happening. Something really bad's happening. And out of the bogs stumbled this man in the worst gorilla outfit you've ever seen. He had a gorilla's head, hadn't bothered with a torso, and a couple of marigolds that looked like they'd been rolled in Labrador pubes for a couple of minutes. He then threw me onto the floor and basically took off his trousers to reveal a very small leopard skin pouch, at which point he turned round and basically slammed his genitals into my face rhythmically, while shouting, Mel, that's right, Mel. Happy birthday, Mel. <laughs> Happy birthday, Mel. Even a gorillagram doesn't know which one's Mel and which one's Sue, right? Which point a semicircle had formed around me, including my parents. <laughs> that's right, Mel, that's right, Mel. So for that, every single time I gig, I will do that. By the way, um, there is a link here, actually. Uh, the Festival Hall, just like Mel, is celebrating 70 glorious years in the arts this year. <laughs> so, uh, notionally, not that you'd know from the gig so far, I'm supposed to be talking about this. So this is a book uh, that I wrote. Uh, weirdly, if you look at my CV right now, it's essentially Battenberg cake and a trip up the Ho Chi Minh. Um, so I, I wasn't a, a natural traveller. We didn't travel a lot when I was growing up. The most exotic thing we had in our house was Raj Passau. Remember Raj Passau? He was on, I think, this morning. He sort of looked at testicles, but in a very, in a very clinical environment. Very clinical environment. Um, so I'm not the sort of person who would automatically kind of decide that they want to go on an enormous adventure. Uh, but I did, and I ended up going to Southeast Asia. I ended up going to India. In fact, uh, I completed a trip to the Ganges about 18 months ago. Uh, and they offered, and I agreed. To be honest, I wanted to get as far away from the generation game as I possibly could. <laughs> Do you know people can be very, very, very cruel on social media? Very cruel. I didn't even know that Mary Berry had a computer. <laughs> very punchy. Um, I, don't tra I didn't travel much before. I get anxious. I'm an anxious person. Is anyone, else, it's, is anyone else anxious? Does anyone else have anxiety? Does anyone else feel panic at the thought of being singled out in a large crowd? Hands up. 
all are well. Don't worry, there's no house lights going on. All are welcome. So I've got a super special guest who's going to interview me, or even interview me for a bit, and then we'll probably open it up, and if you want to ask questions, we'll just play for a while. But before all of that, I guess I should probably read a little bit. So, oh, there it is. Um, Weirdly, even though this is a book about travel, I guess it's a kind of follow-up memoir, um, and it deals with all sorts of bits and bobs of my life. This first bit that I'm going to read isn't very travel-y. It's actually about um, my very brief acting career. Um, I do like to get into character. For me, it's important. I've had no formal training, but I tend towards being a little method in my approach. I remember, fondly, a casting for a tea commercial where I was auditioning for the role of Maggie the Pigeon. It was one of the most, two most embarrassing casting calls of my life. I've only ever had two casting calls <laughs> in my life. Um, it transpired for the role of Maggie the Pigeon, I hadn't needed to rent the outfit. But you learn, don't you? I wasn't sure what kind of an accent pigeons might have, but a little research and it really was a little, yielded the surprising fact that, although feral pigeon populations tend to be very concentrated in cities, their numbers are actually greater in rural areas. Anyway, to cut a long story short, I gave Maggie the Pigeon a West Country burr, like she was the distant cousin of a Cadbury's caramel bunny, or at least lived in the same postcode. I also made her gluten intolerant, which I thought was pretty counterintuitive uh, and a neat and unexpected little twist. I arrived at the audition to see the usual bunch of downcast actors fidgeting and muttering to themselves while reading the script. I said a quick hello and then settled myself down to begin my deep breathing exercises. What I wasn't expecting was for an assistant to emerge and hand me a character breakdown, a full A4 sheet listing Maggie the Pigeon's likes and dislikes. Well, this was a last-minute blow. I had, of course, created my own backstory for the character. Uh, abandoned at birth, fostered by doves. <laughs> a checkered series of relationships with older pigeons that hinted at a father complex. <laughs> so it was somewhat annoying to have to rethink the role at such short notice. I shall always remember the first line on that sheet. Maggie the pigeon is an organised and well-kept pigeon who goes to the gym regularly. At least twice a week. Now, this stumped me. In all my calculations, I had not factored in that Maggie might be a gym-goer. What an oversight. I stared down at my midriff. It was too late to get in shape for the role, but mind you, what pigeon has a six-pack? Finally, I was called in. It became clear early on that the West Country accent was surplus to requirement. One of the casting directors even said that the Geordie wasn't working which I thought was a little unkind. I can do other voices, I said. Your own is fine, said the director. Could you make her more clipped or brusque, said the producer. Sure, I said. She needs to be abrasive and uncomfortable in her own skin. Yeah, that's why we asked you in, said the director. <laughs> After about 15 minutes of ad-libbing around Maggie's busy schedule, popping the washing in the drums, sorting the shopping, organising work diaries, they decided to get another actor in to audition with me. Now, this is called the chemistry test. 
I think this ascertains whether or not you have the requisite sparky je ne sais quoi with another performer. So in walked a lovely Irish guy I've met in reception called Dave. The director piped up. Dave's going to be playing the part of Tom, the obese owl. <laughs> I looked over at Dave, who wasn't a beast in the slightest. He looked down at his belly and, and up again. Hey, Tom, you massive owl, I said, trying to help him into character. Hi, Maggie, you big fat pigeon, said Dave, returning the compliment. We shook hands. As we did so, I welded my fingers together to form a claw. <laughs> Just to get us into the part, you know. Right, said the director. Right, you two. Tom and Maggie have the hots for one another. It's an unspoken thing. It's unconsummated. Think Dempsey and Makepeace. Or that couple of moonlighting. Okay, said Dave, distinctly awkwardly. Okay, I said, equally awkwardly. I was suddenly feeling rather hot under the collar. They're obsessed, said the director. They have that ache, you know, that yearning inside them. So why don't you have a role play around that? Really feel the sexual tension. Let's see what happens. Just your average casting session. A gay man playing an overweight raptor and a gay woman playing an uptight pigeon, both locked in a love that could never be. <laughs> we sat on the sofa and tremulously began. The lines for the commercial, which were, it was a tea commercial, mainly about the rich brew being an excellent source of flavonoids, didn't really lend themselves to a sexual subtext, but by God, we gave it a go. In the end, after about 20 minutes, Dave just gave up and simply laid his head in my lap, leaving me to carry on with a speech about how comforting a cup of tea is after a stressful house move. We both got the job. <laughs> Uh, I'm really, really lucky today to be interviewed uh, by somebody very, very dear to my heart. Um, please welcome a woman who has seen more genitals than you've had hot dinners. And let me tell you, for someone who has scrutinised so many bits and bobs, it is nothing less than a visceral thrill to get out of a bath in front of her. Ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for Anna Richardson! <laughs> Hello, darling. Come on, then. now. Thank you. Well, can I just say this is as much of a surprise for me as it is for you, because frankly, I was told that this was an open audition for Naked Attraction. So <laughs> it very, may well become that. Very it may well good luck. Good luck. You know that uh, you're meant to be having a book signing afterwards. No, no. <laughs> Can no, I just no. say that Susan and Tracy are now playing us? <laughs> oh, which one? So, how which so, one's which? One's, which one's, oh, I Tracy, are you me, love? Are you playing me? And Susan is playing. I mean, I tell you what, you're looky likey. It's unbelievable, it's the isn't fringe. it? Unbelievable. It's the fringe. I bet you get mistaken for Claudia Winkleman all the time as well, Susan. <laughs> Uh, this is quite no. weird now. You've got to sort of interview me in a formal way. I'm going to really enjoy it. Please don't <laughs> mention the fact I leave my pants on the floor. We're going to discuss that. 
in depth. Can I just apologise as well, very briefly? I have, I do actually have a very bad chest infection, so if I cough, I'll try not to. Um, you will blow the mic if you cough. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so uh, apparently, this is your book. This is my book. Have you read it? You lazy bitch. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently, can I just say I had to make her read it? I had to make her read it. So I hear that it's all about your travels. <laughs> <laughs> Now, the thing is, babe, we've known I could each other. have taken anyone home from that party. <laughs> <laughs> Slightly overplaying my hand there. I couldn't have taken anyone home. Um, we've known each other for how long? Six years? Yep. So six years, and in all that time, we've travelled to Stoke-on-Trent. So yeah. <laughs> oh, the Riviera of the North. <laughs> And actually, well, that is a little bit of a lie because we have also been to Ibiza and my abiding memory of you is wearing a bubble wig uh, in the bathtub, doing bathtub karaoke in the Pipes Hotel. So, when you came home and said to me, I've been offered this documentary where I get to travel the entire of Southeast Asia, I literally couldn't believe it. Yeah. So, the Perkins clan, not, not, as you know, not traditionally adventurers, are they? Anne Perkins, not so much, no. No. Not, not, not the mother, no. Um, so, basically, uh, if you look back, if you track back, I remember my dad doing this, because he, there was, I got um, asked if I'd think about doing Who Do You Think You Are? And they do a sort of pre-rehearsal, uh, they sort of research your family tree and see if you're worthy. Our family weren't worthy. Just out of interest, I was going to say, why didn't you do I think that would be a great thing to do. You've got so many skeletons in your family closet. We've be got amazing. We've got absolutely... Listen, my dad tracked it back, and every single uh, female member of his family going back till 1765 was a char lady, and every single bloke was either a labourer or a, a military guy, but a low-ranking sort of corporal maximum, usually private. And so my dad was the first person that ever went outside the British Isles, whole of his family. And he went as far as Jamaica on national service and apparently screamed his head off when he saw a crab. <laughs> Literally screamed like a girl. I suppose it depends what kind of crab we're talking about. Though, oh, course, he was riddled with those crabs, but he, he saw... <laughs> So that's the only trip abroad he ever, ever made, was he went really? to Jamaica. Yeah, he said they were the size of landmines. He said that's what they were, huge, and they would, I think they would camp out on the beach there as part of their, uh, their training. And he said they would sort of come up to you, and they were skittering, and they were <laughs> enormous. So he never went anywhere. My mum also went to Ibiza, and she said it wasn't Spanish enough. <laughs> She'd never been to Spain before, so I have no idea what she was comparing it to. <laughs> and then she never went anywhere either. So... And, and when we grew up, the, the, the sort of closest we got to adventure was we'd go on day trips to Brighton. Mm. So my dad would wake us up at half five, bundle us into the car, and we'd head off. And Croydon, where we lived, um, twinned with Mordor, if you're interested, um, <laughs> is about 38 miles from Brighton. So we'd arrive at half six in the morning. <laughs> tell you that Brighton in 1978 wasn't the Brighton that we see now. <laughs> At 6.30 in the morning, there was nobody making artisanal coffee or doing Bikram yoga on a pavement. It was just cold and bleak, and we parked up outside the newsagent and we'd wait for two and a half hours bickering in the car until it <laughs> opened. We'd run in, I'd get a star bar, I'd run out, Dad would boot us into the sea, we'd cry a bit, He'd have a beer, it was by then about half past nine. <laughs> we'd get back into the car, he'd have another beer and drive us home, and we'd be home by 20 past 12. <laughs> <laughs> 
So what, what was the point of it, though? He wanted to get it done quickly before grandstand. Oh, I see. He, he wanted, he loved to go away, but he liked it to be near. He didn't like to sleep in, quote, strange beds. Didn't like strange beds. Um, and my mum is a catastrophizer, so she's frightened of everything. So in the first book I wrote, I, I mentioned that she wore marigold gloves to open mail after the anthrax. <laughs> I'm not exaggerating. She, she used to put notes by the door saying, um, you know, no unauthorised mail, no unauthorised mail. Like it was MI5 <laughs> we're running. No. Um, so she, so this was the sort of environment I grew up in. I had a, a sort of panicked, worried mother and a very, very sensitive, mm. I mean, you, my, you, you knew my dad obviously very well, very sensitive, curious, quiet, emotional man. Neither of whom went anywhere, wanted to do very much outside of, of, of GB. And so I didn't either. And when I got asked to go, I just sort of thought, if I don't go, if I don't push myself, then I'm going to, and I love my parents with all my heart, but I'm going to end up there, as we all do. You know, we're all products of our parenting. And I just thought, I'm going to be that person if I ever have kids or I'll be saying to my godchildren, well, you don't want to go there, it's dangerous, or, oh, I couldn't go there, it's too foreign. And so I said, yes. So, so in a sense, you, you decided that I'm going to take on this challenge because yeah. Anne and Bert never would have done. But you know what I'm like with dares, right? With what? With dares. Oh, you with know... dare? Oh, yes. I thought you said dairy. I was saying, really? I do know what you like with dairy. <laughs> really, Where really odd. From? A really <laughs> odd tangent. Well, you know what I'm like with dairy. <laughs> with dares? Yet, yeah, please do tell them about the dare. Well, Anna, we went on holiday to Menorca, and Anna dared me to... We were at a cliff edge. Now, when you're on a cliff edge... That's not the place you want to be dared to do anything, really. <laughs> That's not the safe space, is it? So I was in a, I imagine, quite an ill-fitting bikini. The sun bouncing off my white body. The sun thinking, no, we cannot make any inroads into this flesh. We cannot seem to turn it any other colour. It is resisting us. And not, We've all, pumped UV into the little maggot body, but it won't, it won't it change. Won't all I could see, I, I was in, in, in the water below in this sort of amazing lagoon, and Sue was on this sort of, you know, 20-metre cliff above me. You know, as you say, your white maggoty body just deflecting. <laughs> no, I, can I just say, I say that. You're not <laughs> supposed to say that. But I, everybody was cheering you on. I was going, come on, you'll be fine. You'll be... And then you did. No, uh, but you dared me. You said, I dare you. It's always the people safe in the water that dare the ones up on the mountainside. Right? So I just, and I looked down, I have never been so scared. It, it was so far down. And I just did it. Because she dared me, I threw myself down. And for this moment, I just had this moment of pure joy, this exhilarating sort of weightlessness. And then I just thought, as I just was about to hit the water, I noticed that my legs had gone down this beautiful sort of crucifix shape. <laughs> <laughs> and then I noticed that my legs had started to bend a bit like that. And as I hit the water, apparently it's like hitting concrete, I hit it on my arse and sh shattered my coccyx. Mm. My, basically, my bum bone was like a bag of dust. <laughs> Just sort of atomised. And I literally got out like this. <laughs> <laughs> and you went, shall we go to the bar? And it's like, can you fuck off? <laughs> <laughs> And I couldn't sit down for three months. <laughs> and I had, to sit, I had to sit on one of those pile cushions, you know, those donut cushions. <laughs> Which she still got. 
She loves it. <laughs> I like it. You now love I that. can't sit on anything else. <laughs> you can't see there's a massive hole in this one. Well, it's my it? safe space now. Kind of doubles up as a neck rest on the plane as well. Yes. Your pile cushion. Yeah. Um, uh, let's just spin forward to your O levels. Did oh you? God, you're not on top of my O level results. I know, well, I've gone from dairy to dares <laughs> and now on to O levels. Um, did you did you study any languages at all, Susan? Well, you know I didn't. Well, I did. Well, did I? I think I studied French and I was quite bad at it. I liked the idea of being fluent in French because I thought that would make me unassailably erotic. But then... <laughs> but why do you keep speaking to me in German at home? It's just something I like. <laughs> you do. So you didn't do German O-level? No, I did German. I did German and I did French, but I wasn't very good at either because, I, for me, the, I did them because I thought I'd love to speak them fluently, but I never did any of the work. And I didn't understand the tenses, I didn't know what past historic was, and I didn't understand the male and female endings. But nice. yet I'm terrible with languages, and I see that you as a journalist are trying to drag me inexorably <laughs> to a point from where I can springboard into a palatable anecdote. I'm, I'm, I'm trying. I'm yeah. trying. Because the reason I've asked you about languages is because, again, if we just list where you've, where you've been other than Stoke, you've been to Cambodia, yes. Laos, Vietnam, yeah. China, yeah. India... You can't speak any of those languages. So, given that, that you were filming for a really long period of time, and we're not just talking about being a tourist, we're talking about doing a documentary. Yeah. How did you cope with the communication? Because that's an awful lot to deal with. And especially, as I say, when you're making a film. Well, normally you'd have translators in that situation. And making a... Uh, I talk... I mean, this book is sort of a memoir of the last five years, but it's also about making television how awkward and difficult it sometimes is, how constrictive sometimes, but also how it never goes the way you think it's going to go. So in your head, when you, when you turn up in a tribal clearing and there's a, uh, a tribe there, say the Kurung tribe, there's only 2,000 Kurung in the world, you think, well, that's great because they've organised three translators. The translators, one will do English to Kamea, Kamea to uh, Benong, say, and then the one will do the very, very tiny sort of dialect shift from Benong to Kurung. I'm amazed that you're going to be able to sign Benong and Kurung. <laughs> Benong and Kurung, Benong and Kurung, Benong and Kurung. <laughs> Tracy, I'm in love with you. <laughs> I think I know the word for bullshit. That, I think she's, <laughs> she's playing with... Oh, it's, <laughs> it was that. I thought it was that. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, um, I was supposed to have all these translators and none of them show, ever. You always end up just standing there going, hello, um, and thinking, how am I going to communicate? Now, the first time I realised that communication was going to be a problem was when I was in a school in Vietnam. Uh, and this is not only a problem of translation, but also of cultural difference. So I walked in there and they said, we'd really like you to take a lesson. And I went, great. I'm in rural Vietnam. Part of teaching English as a foreign language is, is being able to speak the other language so that you can make the sort of references between the two. So I walked in and everyone sort of very politely bowed and stuff and just waited. And I thought, as with everything else I do, it's very unscripted and unplanned. So I thought, well, the only thing that can come to mind with these kids is to sing a song. And I'm going to do heads and shoulders, knees and toes, because that's going to tell them about body parts and that's informative. 
So they all stand up, these beautiful kids, perfect ironed uniform, all sort of bowing. Uh, in Vietnam, if you're bowing to somebody similar age, you'll bow like that. If you're bowing to somebody who's much, much older, you do that. Turns out I'm much, much, much older. <laughs> so I thought, right, here we go. So I started off going, heads. They went, heads. And I said, shoulders, shoulders. And they took it right back. So we did heads and shoulders. And we did knees and toes. And we bent down. And we did that for a couple of minutes. And I noticed that uh, my mates, Ollie and Matt, who do sound and, 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 and uh, camera, who, who feature a lot in this book, were laughing uncontrollably. I thought, something is very wrong. <laughs> And I became aware that there was a sort of intervention being staged at the back of the class. And essentially what had happened is one of the kids was very close to his desk when the whole thing had started. And he was very keen to do it, so he was going heads and shoulders, concussion. <laughs> heads and shoulders, concussion. For about five minutes, smashing his head down. And it was just awful, I felt so bad. But it shows you that in two things. A, you really need a translator, but also how different. You know, and I talk a lot about cultural difference in this book and trying to, to, to unpick some of the huge complexities that I encountered. But in that school, in Vietnam, at that period of time in history, the only thing that matters was that he obeyed. And the result was a terrible banging headache, so at which point I quickly you know, drew, the, drew the class to, uh, to a close. And the other time where I felt very abandoned was... Um, uh, in a tribal gathering uh, uh, way, way north in a place called Ratnakiri in Cambodia. And um, there was a great gang of women who were all sort of smoking pipes. A lot of, a lot of scrutiny there. Lot of... I thought, oh, God. So I thought, right, I'll count to ten. Count to ten, that's easy. One, one, two, two, easy. And then I thought I'd really made some connections, sat down, and ended up just parking up on an enormous pig shit huge, wet pig shit, which meant for the rest of the day, there is no changing in documentary filmmaking. There was this sort of drying turd on each buttock. <laughs> really bad. But I, I guess I'd been used to just giving English uh, out and not having much sort of feedback. So I was quite surprised we ended up walking into this cashew forest. And um, one of them started pointing to her boobs. And I thought, God, what is, go what is happening in this village? Where are all the men? Why are you pointing at your nipples? Naked attractions travelled. <laughs> it is naked attraction. So I thought, well, she probably wants to know the name. She yes. kept saying the Kamea name, and I, so I ended up saying, oh, they're boobs. They're boobs. So 40 women. Boobs. <laughs> boobs. I thought, well, that was awkward, but I've got away with that. About 10 minutes later, lots of women pointing there. I thought, oh, Christ, no. <laughs> Bearing in mind I'm being filmed. So there's five pages in this book, essentially, where I'm going through all the words for vagina I can think of in my head, <laughs> trying to think which would be the best one for BBC Two at nine o'clock on a Sunday. <laughs> Literally every single word for vagina, and I think I know most of them, I'm going through thinking, oh, that's too BBC Three. No, that's, no, that's way too BBC One. No, that's, that's pre-Watershed. And just as I'm about to say, I can't remember which word, but just as I'm about to say that, I go, damn, I'm not being nations and regions inclusive. I've not even thought about Scottish words, Welsh words, Northern <laughs> Irish words. So out of nowhere, I just think of Scotland, and I just went, fud. <laughs> fud. At which point the director's literally like, what, 
what, what's happened to you? So just 40 women. Fud. Fud. Boobs. Fud. Um, finally, um, and possibly the anecdote you were trying to elicit, um, <laughs> the most, uh, some of the most profound things happened when we didn't really speak at all. You just find this, I don't know about you, but just being somewhere and somebody putting their hand in yours, that happens quite a lot when you're away, uh, particularly the farther away you go from our own culture and our own social uh, mores. And um, I was always very, very affected by people who would just come up to me. They, they'd often never seen a Westerner, so there'd be a lot of pulling at my jowls, and often a couple of pensioners on each, uh, on each knee at the end of the evening, <laughs> just having a cuddle. I once went to sleep with two Cambodian sort of, uh, sort of, I think they're probably in their 80s, just heads there, sleeping, pissed out of their heads. <laughs> um, but there was one particular cultural exchange that, that comes to mind, which just sums up the stupidity of me and also uh, of this sort of, well, just, yeah, of me. So we were in Cambodia again, and I was supposed to see a hermit. And uh, he was a holy man who dwelt in the forest, and he'd invited me for tea. And I don't know much about hermits, but I sort of think that implicit in the word hermit is a sense of ascetic removal from society. So the fact he'd asked me for tea was a bit weird, but I went along with it. And um, the camera followed me all the way up these huge steps, about 100 steps going past this gold temple. And at the top of it was this guy who looked like Fu Manchu, who was just sort of bowed and so super religious. And I thought, oh, I literally, my heart sung. I just thought, this is incredible. So I bowed my head, and then he just smacked his head really hard onto my head, right? <laughs> Ow! God, I can't say anything. So I just kept my head there, really quiet. My, head, my temples were throbbing. And then it went on and on for about two minutes of silence. I thought, God, I can, I can almost read his mind. <laughs> this is so special. I am communing with an ancient mystic. And then his hands moved after a while, and he just popped his hands on my shoulders. I thought, God, the electricity. The electricity, the current moving through him, and all the people he's descended from in this incredible ancient light. It's amazing. A couple more minutes went by. His hands moved down a bit, this time to just my buttocks, actually. Really quite firm <laughs> grips. Head still there, just gripping onto my buttocks. And I thought, wow, this must be some kind of Buddhist ritual. This is some intense kind of greeting that's probably been done for thousands of years in this extraordinarily remote part of the world. And then he just moved a little bit, and the hands just moved to the side of the jugs, just to the <laughs> side here. Perfect, I thought. This is an incredible moment, <laughs> an incredible blessing. And I just took all the blessing and I drank it in until I felt him move again and just bring himself up to his full height, and he just went, <laughs> Bastards! Now, we are so far behind in every way. What did he ask? What did he ask you for? Because had he been, you know, yes, a, a he, sort of pro proper hermit? Had he been silent all this time? No, he was. He was. So the story we were supposed to get was the story of the Khmer Rouge. She were the, the, the. I don't know. Uh, how much you know about uh, the history of Cambodia, but it's very, very dark indeed. Uh, and uh, during the reign of Pol Pot, many, many, many hundreds of thousands, millions possibly people were, were slaughtered. And uh, holy men like him had to go uh, into hiding. So we, we thought we'd get a nice chat about that. Instead, what he did was he reached for an Elvis wig, which he put on quite a lot, <laughs> and nodded, and then sort of gripped grip my boob again. And... Um, 
and it turns out that he'd worn it as a disguise in the forest <laughs> whilst running from the Khmer Rouge. <coughs> and there were so many supplementary questions I wanted to ask about... It, 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 you just look much more of a target, dressed like Elvis, than you would do normally. But anyway, I didn't, I didn't want to sort of push that. But yeah, he, we asked him what he'd like, um, and he wanted me to call him. And I, I, again, I wasn't sure that hermits had mobile phones, but he did. And he, he requested that we give some money to the temple, which looks after the forest, and that we gave him 10 metres of leopard skin fur fabric. That's a hermit, hermit after my own heart, I've got so to say. It just, and, and at the end, we watched one of the acolytes turned up, and they, they wound him like a big bobbin. It looked like Bet, sort of Bet Lynch at the end of it, you know. And that's what he wanted. He wanted a new robe, and he wanted it in something a little bit more, more jazzy. He was amazing, the hermit. He was grabby, but he was amazing. <laughs> was amazing. You mentioned earlier on how, when you were with the women, that you sat in a sort of big pig pat. Yes. And you've talked about the Kurung tribe as well. Yeah. Every time you managed to call me from one of the countries that, that you were visiting, it would be with a sort of horrific tale of, <laughs> I've had to go to hospital... I've got typhoid, I've whatever. I did it's, have typhoid. No, you, the thing about Sue is that Sue is hugely neurotic and particularly about you. health. <laughs> did you actually catch anything? Because... <laughs> Do you know what really hurts, right? It's not only is my partner saying I'm neurotic, the first cackle I hear in the audience, my fucking agents laugh, right? <laughs> You take 15% of my neurosis. <laughs> it's working for you. Can I just say, I did get... <laughs> bastard. I got something called chikigunya, which isn't made up. It sounds made up. There's an awful lot of hard consonants in that, um, which is sort of dengue fever, but longer and... Sort of, it's, it's a, it's, so dengue is like break bone. You feel like your bones are popping. This one is less impressive, but it lasts for longer. How did you get it? I got it um, basically because the car stalled in a large pool of sort of mud, and they revved it, and a load of mosquito water flicked into my face, which I sort of swallowed, and it went up my nose and in my eyeballs. Were you not worried about the... The dead pig that had just been slaughtered and the Krung tribe was feeding you bits of that it. That was really bad. That was really bad. So I, I sort of... I've eaten everything now. There's nothing... There's nothing that I haven't eaten, I think, especially on my travels. The point is, when people cook for you, you can't say no. Mm. So, you know, people would say, come, we've made a banquet, and then something that was obviously a spatchcock barbecued rat would be presented. Hey, come to my house. I've just made deep fried spider. That was another one. Oh. There'd be a lot of deep fried spider. Uh, but you, you obviously eat it because you, you don't want to, you know, appear uh, rude or anything. But the raw pig was bad. That was a, an animists festival. So animists believe that their spirits, the spirits of their ancestors, live in the tribal forests. And which makes it even more painful when you can hear the sound of chainsaws. Um, because it's not just timber being logged. For them, it is the memory of all those people they've loved, of all, all those people going back who've shared their traditions and their ways of life. 
So they have this special ceremony where they honour the ancestors in the forest and they kill a pig. And uh, that was awful. And I had to leave for that bit. Well, it's very difficult for you because other than eating Pringles and, you know, corn (laughs) sausages... You are basically very concerned about animals and you're a vegetarian. What do you mean other than? Well, that's I mean, not other as than. Well as. That's because of. <laughs> well, you know how we talk about health a lot and you go, I really need to do the paleo diet and I've got to be really, really healthy. <laughs> and then you pop open a whole bag of sort of, you know, Pringles. Yeah. But anyway, so you are... I, I knew cons- that. They didn't know that. But now but, I know that. But you are concerned, aren't you? Because I know that you, that you saw a lot of sort of um, cruelty and, and deprivation, yeah. particularly towards the animals. So for that particular moment, you... You had to leave, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, I, there's, there's things that you don't want to see. And uh, I, I did a lot of animal petting when I was there. Because sometimes you don't really know what to do. Um, for those of you who've been to, to Southeast Asia, I assume many of you have, uh, animals are transported live. So um, they'll buy an animal in a market live um, and they'll take it home um, and they'll kill it at home. So you, you, I, I would just see ducks on the back of motorcycles and stuff and... and um, I would just not know what to do, so I would often just pour water on them and sort of hold them a little bit. And you know, they were just dangling upside down by an exhaust pipe. And with the pig, I knew the pig was going to get killed. I thought it might have been killed before I arrived, and I just went into a flat panic because it was still there. And I just said, "Look, I, I don't want to be disrespectful for the bonong, but I can't do, I can't do it." So I kissed the pig's ear. I bent down and kissed Aww. the pig's ear. And I just felt such a dick, and then I burst into tears. And I just thought, <laughs> "Oh God." Why isn't Ben Fogel here, or Simon Reeve, or Michael Palin, or anybody? I didn't see Michael Palin almost vomiting with pain at the top of a pig and then kissing its ear and saying, goodbye, love, I'm so sorry. But you did. You saved a moon bear, though. I didn't save it. I went to see people who had saved it. But you were part of that whole process, and that was extraordinary. You said it was one of the most amazing things you've ever seen. No, it was. So, um, yes. So the Benong, first of all, with the, with the pig... Um, they sacrificed it, and what they used to do was... Uh, I, I just thought, well, they kill the pig and I come back in and then we're going to have a party together. But actually, I noticed that this party seemed to involve putting bits of raw pig on you. So at one point, I thought, God, what's happening? They got me in a headlock and they sort of ground some pig kidney into my quiff. <laughs> and then they put a bit of intestine over your earlobe and stuff. And, and I had to get very, very drunk to deal with that. Very, very, very drunk. But the, yes, the, the incident with the... With the rescue stuff, was in, well, it was one of the great moments of my mm. life. I, I had to go and see a man called Dean from the World Wildlife Rescue Foundation. And he was undercover in a spit and sawdust cafe in the middle of Cambodia. And went in and I asked for him. And nobody sort of said, oh, I'm Dean. So I asked around a bit more. And finally, around the back of this huge family-run restaurant, there was a pack of military police and this one Aussie guy called Dean. And they sort of drew themselves up to their full height when I, when I arrived, as if I was sort of threatening. And they said, oh, no, it's that twat that kisses ducks on the back of my bike. Stand down there, you're all right. You're all right. And um, he said, do you want to follow us for the day? And his job, Dean used to work in, um, with trafficked children. And he stopped doing that after 25 years. And he, you'd think after that, he's, he sort of earned the right to retirement. You know, he could be sitting on a beach, but not Dean. Dean decided he was going to move from trafficked kids to trafficked animals. So his job was to try and save and then uh, place back into the wild these, these animals. So we got into the car, and there was a convoy of about five jeeps. And all the military police put denim jackets over there military uniforms so they couldn't be spotted. And we drove through these tiny little villages with these sort of dead-eyed people just staring at us. And you think, well, they're staring at us because we're in these huge jeeps and they have nothing. And it was a look of real hatred. 
And every so often, we'd park up and we'd swap Jeeps. And I'd think, what the hell's going on? And we drove for hours and hours and hours. And Cambodia is like a rolling dust ball. It's this endless cloud of red dust that gets everywhere. And finally, after about seven hours, we transferred vehicles again. And I noticed that one of the Jeeps at the back, um, they'd, every time we changed car, they'd been moving these three big crates. We then got to a dead end and there was a boat. They loaded the crates and myself and Dean onto the boat. We travelled another two hours. We swapped boats. Along the way, I could see people making calls on their mobile phone. And Dean said, they're trying to shop us in. They're trying to pinpoint our location and phone in to the poachers so that they can pick up the animals we're about to release. Another four hours later, by which time I was so addled, we got to a bit of primary forest where nobody could get to. I mean, human beings just don't get into that part of the forest. And they brought out the first crate and I thought oh what's this going to be and suddenly out tumbled this enormous water python it was like meters and meters of thick horrific terrifying cable coming out and it was so strong because it just obviously it just saw the river and just wanted to get the hell out and get into the water so we managed to sort of funnel them back in and the second crate got brought up and the forest was so beautiful and the trees were so tall you could barely see the sky and Dean said all right are you ready? He said, if you want to look at this, you want to see how wonderful this is, you're going to have to be quick because they're, they're going to go. And I lifted up the wooden slat at the front and I just saw two little macaques, their faces like this. And then they, boom, straight up the tree. And you just didn't see them for dust. It was absolutely incredible. <coughs> and the third one, Dean said, this is a special one. We don't get many of these alive. This one's for you. And I opened it and there was this little creature turned like that, almost like a little gremlin and eventually sort of turned round, and it was a slow loris. And we just picked up this beautiful little thing and popped it on the tree. And I don't know what we were expecting, but Jesus, it was slow. <laughs> Matt's like, Matt's the cameraman's like, oh, Christ. He's just, he's just spent, you know, 14 hours filming me going from car to car to car to car to boat to boat to car to boat to boat to boat to car to, oh, get on with it. <laughs> so this, this little thing is just like, just like, could you, and that's what, sort of what I write about, is could you make this more televisual, Slow Loris? We need <laughs> trying to make a television programme. But yeah, eventually it got to beyond where uh, we could touch it, beyond to where the tallest one of us could touch it. And then we realised that it was safe and it had taken that long. It took 14 hours and that many changes of vehicle to make one animal safe. So it was a real, it was a real eye-opener. It really was. So much in, in the book, actually. It's... There, there are so many touching things in the book like that. And there's so much about love and your family and also a yearning to come home. And one thing that really struck me was, obviously, that this is a love letter to your dad, yeah. to Bert, and very, very sadly, in between Sue's trips, her dad, Bert, died. Um, and you nursed him for the last two or three weeks of his life back at home? Yeah, and off and on. Uh, the, the last book I wrote, which taught me a lesson, I guess, ended with my dad being given the all clear. So I'm sure this room is littered, really, really stuffed full of people who know what that is like, who know what it's like to have a loved one being given uh, a cancer diagnosis. And that one was dad's second primary, that was in the throat, and uh, it was a real shit. It really was. Uh, they made a radiotherapy mask 
with the target marks in. And the book ends with that mask, which was sort of weird. It was like Jason from... Is it Jason from Halloween? Who is it? Is it Jason? Who's the... You know the one I mean. You know the one I mean. Which one? Mike Myers, that's it, Mike Myers. Um, and it was the mask hanging on, on the, the door, the, the, the kitchen door in Cornwall where they, they were living, and just sort of swinging in the breeze and me thinking, it's done, it's over. And actually this man who I love, who struggled all his life with depression, with being very sensitive, with being too emotional, the sort of man, I don't know, who'd pour water on, on a duck on the back of a moped. <laughs> who just feels too much and is too porous and struggles as a result, he's free and there's a bit of levity, you know, and, and you saw a lot of, of him struggling. And uh, that was a sort of happy ending to that book and it was all very, very true, very, very real as it happened. And then um, I went and did that big Mekong trip and the book was published. And my dad, I thought my dad will never read it. Because my dad loved sci-fi, and if it didn't have an intergalactic space battle in it, <laughs> he was never I'm not interested. I'm not. He couldn't deal with real life. He wanted to displace everything to a different planet. But just before he died, you had a conversation, didn't you, where you said, because I mean, he wasn't a particularly spiritual man, and no. yet, and yet, he said to you, "If there's something beyond the curtain, I will come back and I will let you know." And I think one of the most surprising things about the book, and, and, and something that you've told me as well, is when you were in the Himalayas. Yeah, he... Um, so he got, he got diagnosed about... I was supposed to go to the Andes, actually. We were supposed to be going to the Andes, and, and uh, he got sick. So we cancelled everything. And uh, I looked after him for the last seven months off and on, and as you say, very, very acutely for the last sort of month, I, I guess. And I had extraordinary times with him. Um, there's a lot in the book about love and how hard it is for some people to say it. I say I'm very good, I'm quite good at saying it. I say it to anyone. Um, I mean, <laughs> not anyone. <laughs> um, but I'm very expressive. Yes. <clears throat> and my dad found it quite hard. So a lot of the book is about trying to get my dad, as he was dying, to say, I love you. Because I've always known my dad loved me. Always. I have been so very loved. He never judged me. He never, you know, he was always, he just said, don't do what I've done. Be free. Be who you want to be. There was never a trace of any kind of bigotry or judgment about him whatsoever. Um, and he was, you know, utterly extraordinary. But in those last few weeks in between getting him to say I love you and I did manage and you can read about that I uh, I had these extraordinary moments one of which was uh, him saying as you said that that he would come back and I said but you you don't sort of believe that do you and he said well you know I, I'm a, a humanist and I think you know we all it's a circle of life kind of a thing old girl but if I do come back I'll come back as and then he told me what he'd come back as and I thought, didn't think anything more of it. And then after he died, uh, I went to the Ganges. And because we're not very good with death in this country, or at least I'm not going to make it about this country, I'm not very good with death. And I just sort of suppressed it, didn't I? I just mm. pushed it down and I would get chest infections and cough and not be able to breathe. And, and that was actually not about being ill, but it was about watching someone who died and taking on that weird breathing and those weird pains and incorporating them into my own sort of body. But I, I ended up going up the Himalayas and... and 
it was only sort of there at the top, I sort of thought to myself, well, I'm going to say something incredible about mountains here. I'm going to do this definitive piece to camera that's going to revolutionise television. I am going to be like a god amongst men. When I open my mouth on this mountain, when people watch this show, they won't believe how I've encapsulated the spiritualism of the landscape uh, and tied in all the complexities of the religion and also, and I just was about to do that and then uh, went like that and then I cried for an hour. I mean, wailed and wailed and wailed. And the reason was, is that halfway up, I started to not be able to breathe at all. We hit a point where we were all getting altitude sickness. We had oxygen, it wasn't working. Two of the crew got sent back down. And um, I suddenly noticed this blackbird that started dancing around and just was going in and out of the flames of this, this holy man who'd lit this fire and just hopping around, hopping around. And then it went away for a bit. And just at the point where I got to the very top of the mountain, just could see the source of the Ganges there. And I never, I did it on my hands and my knees. I just went like that. And the blackbird went, dunk. And my dad had said, if there's anything behind the curtain, I'll come back as a blackbird. And I just fucking lost it. I really, really lost it. It's like... Because it's, it's everything and nothing, isn't it? And I, I'm not a particularly religious person, so I, I sort of think you... Um, I say that. This is the puja. I look down as I said that because I'm very interested in the, the magnificence of the universe and uh, coincidence and all that. Uh, actually, um, I've had this on probably for, what, two years yeah. now since I yeah, came least, back, or 18 yeah. months? Um, in India, they do puja, which is a blessing. And everyone along the mountain discovered then, because I'd been crying for so long, that my dad had died. And they all said in Hindi to the translator, we'd like to do puja. Puja's quite long. Um, <laughs> quite long. <laughs> Such a lovely thought. Quite long. Quite long. Um, after the first one, I was like, please, no more puja. No more puja. There's a lot of flicking, flicking bits of water. Flicking bits of water. Lots of petals. Flicking bits more water. But the thing that used to make me cry with laughter, but also really move me, was that they would do this very intense Hindi blessing, but the word Bert would suddenly be, so lots of Hindi and then Bert, 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 Bert Perkins, Hindi, um, and they, they gave me that and I, I, haven't, I haven't taken it off, because there is something about some of it, I think. I am uh, very aware of time, but I've, I've got to get home. The... <laughs> I don't so, want to break it to you, but you live with me. Thanks. And I've got your keys. Thanks for, for everything. I'm aware that you were going to do a reading, weren't you, and also do a Q&A with everybody here. Yeah. Um, so what, what do you want to do? I'll do a reading. Anna has a very bad chest infection, so I'd like to say thank you, sweetie. I know this was a cut above you doing this. Um, I'll do a reading. Ladies and gentlemen, if you want to get off and... Uh, I'd put something on that chest if I were you. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> Anna Richardson! <laughs> thank you. Okay, I'll thank see you a bit. All right, darling. Do you want the book? No, no, I've got mine. I've got <laughs> Oh, she is as sick as a dog, bless her. I really appreciate that. Okay, I'm just going to do a reading. This is from uh, India, actually. When I went to India, I went to Kolkata. I've been to Kolkata quite a lot. Has anyone else been to Kolkata? Anyone else been? It's crazy. It's magic. It's brilliant. It's awful. It's everything. It is. It is. It's, 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 yeah, it's the best of times and the worst. So I went to this really fascinating um, place called uh, the Bow Barracks which is the name uh, indicates a, a barracks that were used by, in, uh, by British soldiers. And basically the British soldiers had relationships with uh, Indian girls, local Indian girls, and the Anglo-Indian community was, was formed, basically. These kids um, that grew up 
uh, during the independence, well, before the independence movement, they were highly prized. They worked in uh, civil service because their English was so good. They were pale-skinned. But after independence, they were sort of rejected, and uh, they were seen as not entirely Indian. And yet they weren't allowed to come to Britain, so they weren't entirely Indian and they weren't entirely British. And they lived in this tiny, squalid, now decrepit barracks in the middle of this super hot mega city. And I went to, to visit them and I found it hugely, hugely affecting. So today, more than 100 families continue to live in the barracks, 80% of whom are Anglo Indian. I was here to meet one of them. I entered the building, turned sharp left, and walked into one of the flats. The family were there waiting, ready to greet me. I was somewhat taken aback by the sight of one of the sons who was wearing full England football strip. I'm not sure it was official merchandise, as the three lions seemed to have been replaced by a pair of obese crocodiles. <laughs> the moment I set foot inside, I was set upon by a pair of distinctly wheezy pugs, one of which went for my ankles. The father said, don't worry about her. She is curious, but she will soon lose interest. I'd heard that before. What's she called? I said. I flinched as her snotty muzzle brushed across my flip-flops. Ah, said the father, that is Brooke Shields. <laughs> so, sorry, Bro Brooke Shields. Yes, that is Brooke Shields. It was an act of will not to laugh. I thankfully maintained my composure standards at all times. The father continued, and this, he pointed towards the second dog, who was busy licking my big toe like a lolly. This is... He muttered a name, and I couldn't quite make it out over the din of the street, but it sounded, I swear to God, an awful lot like Moira Stewart. <laughs> Brooke Shields was now desperately trying to gnaw my fibula, but her face was so flat... <laughs> Her teeth couldn't gain purchase, so instead, she decided to sort of gum the hem of my trousers until they became soggy. It was like being savaged by an asthmatic draft excluder. <laughs> Moira Stewart, on the other hand, had seemingly given up on trying to dissolve my foot with her acrid saliva, so retired to the corner of the room and set free a heady, high-pitched fart. I sat down. Marion, the matriarch of the family, approached. She said, would you like some Christmas cake? It was early October and 35 degrees in the shade. Of course, I said, as if that were the most normal request in the world. That would be wonderful. I was keen not to offend my generous hosts, but I wondered if they served Simnel cake in January and birthday cake at funerals. It didn't matter. Cake is always wonderful, however anachronous. We love Christmas, said the father. Yes, said Marion. It is our favourite time. We can sing jingle bells, said the son. Great, I thought. Please don't. <laughs> Around me were stationed myriad pictures of the Queen and other less luminescent royals fashioned on commemorative china plates and cups. They were everywhere, mounted on walls, adorning shelves and bookcases. We love the Queen, said the father. So I see. We love her, said Marion. Yes, we love her, said the son. 
There was an expectant pause. Everybody stared at me. Oh, yes, sorry, no, uh, I love her too. No, I think she's amazing. Absolutely wonderful. Have you met her? said the father. The family leant forward in eager anticipation. No, I said. No, 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 I haven't. A volley of dry crumbs erupted from my mouth as I spoke. Oh, said the father. Oh, said Marion. The sense of disappointment in the room was palpable. Even Brooke Shields paused <laughs> from her damp mouthings to reflect on my lack of prestige. I started wondering whether someone in production had lied to the family in order to secure the interview, implying perhaps that I had royal connections. Maybe they'd been led to believe that I'd played real tennis with the Earl of Wessex, or at the very least been on an all-night Jägermeister bender at China White's with Princess Eugenie. No one moved to cover the silence. I filled the awkward pause by mainlining what remained of the fruitcake into my mush. Then out came the photos. First, a black and white snapshot of a quintessential Englishman in Royal Navy dress uniform, arms folded and smoking a pipe. It transpired this was the father's grandfather. His son had been the only survivor of a torpedo attack off the Sri Lankan coast in the Second World War. Then came a photocopied sheet, seemingly tracing the family name back to Elvidge, a rare Anglo-Saxon, Old English and pre-7th century moniker. We may even be royalty, said the father, although even he didn't sound convinced. Really, I said. Yes, Henry VIII had many more wives than we know about. <laughs> I'm not sure that he did, I thought, but it wasn't for me to piss on their parade. Another of the sons drifted in, also in full England football strip. I was now at the stage where if a beefeater had wandered through the door singing Greensleeves <laughs> and Morris dancing, I wouldn't have batted an eyelid. I started again, really desperate to keep the interview on track. So, have you ever been to England? I said. No, said the father. Well, do you think about it? Yes, they all said. And what do you think about it? What do you think it's like? Good, said the father. Green, said one of the sons. Home, said Marion. Everybody in the room nodded sagely. Yes, said the father. Home. I tried to speak. No words came. And I am rarely lost for words. But that response just felled me. Home. We abandoned these people. They are the sons and daughters of Mother India and Empire who return time and time again to a crystalline version of our traditions, faithfully observing what we in the UK are beginning to neglect. I returned to the cake, full of more questions than my little brain could answer. And then, once the last piece of marzipan had been swallowed, I put on my dog-dampened flip-flops and, like all the other white Brits before me, I turned on my heels and left them. <laughs>